0: Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world.
1: Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. We're broadcasting across the world from Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California where technology meets entertainment. It is cold here, and if you're listening to this show anywhere in the United States, you'll be freezing. We have been, uh, you know, this is normally a place where you have 356 days of 80-degree temperature, but not in the last couple of weeks we've been down around 40. So um, that's why I'm all rugged up. You know, Davis is in full flight in Switzerland, when you, and when you take out all that obvious political posturing and the point scoring there are a lot of very serious issues to make progress on at a time when domestic populations all over the world and not the least of which is here in the United States are demanding change the rise of the white right, white the rise of the right wing parties and then there was brexit and donald trump suggest that the threat to the established political and economic orders is growing. Freedom House says 2013 was the eighth consecutive year in which global freedom declined. And uh, since 2000, there has been many challenges that democracies have faced. And the peer survey of global attitudes shows that 85% of Chinese are very satisfied with their company's direction, country's direction. 85% compared with just 31% of Americans. And many scholars suggest that democracy is destroying the West and particularly America because the way it works now, it just institutionalizes gridlock, it trivializes decision-making and elects low-quality political representatives and presidents. And I think that's been borne out across the planet. Continued slow growth, combined with high debt and demographic change, creates an environment that favours political crises and growth inequality. You've got a situation where corruption and short-term planning and unequal distribution of the benefits of growth suggest that the capitalist economy model may not be delivering for the people. You know, rising income and wealth inequality is now one of the key risks causing unrest within populations, particularly in the Eurozone and the US, which experienced deep recessions, banking crises, taxpayer-funded uh, bailouts, and real income low, almost no income growth for most households in the developed world. Figures released last week show that the six wealthiest people in the world, six, have more wealth than the next 4,000 million people. So six people have more wealth than the next 4,000 million. And it could be argued that this degree of inequality the dramatic increase in wealth of the 1% as relative to the rest within the developed world has been exacerbated by ultra low to negative interest rates and bonds and other security purchases on a massive scale by central banks. Now this has rewarded those with significant savings and the capacity to invest by greatly inflating the value of financial and property assets while eroding the value of the conventional savings of middle-class and working-class households. Globalisation has improved the living standards of billions of people in the developing economies. It also has shifted production for much of the world from the developed world to the developing world technological advancement is accelerated and technologies are increasingly disrupting and displacing significant number of jobs. President Trump's victory was to a large degree born out of concerns of blue collar workers about the impact of globalization and trade on the security and availability of employment. Now the displacing of traditional jobs by technology is a much more significant factor than globalization itself. The US manufactured product, the amount of product that the US has manufactured has actually increased, but it's increased with far far fewer people employed. Now, protectionism, which is being bantied around everywhere, won't halt the rise of the machines or slow the growth of the cyber economy. The impact of technology on labor markets will increasingly accelerate as the technologies for robotics, machine learning, and communications continue to evolve and evolve faster and faster and faster. Driverless vehicles and drone deliveries, for example, are going to have a profound impact for less skilled jobs. Today, it's intellectual property. Technological knowledge and skills that are going to generate the highest returns both for corporations and for workers. Now, this creates major challenges for governments who are faced with the problem of what to do with huge numbers of less educated and less skilled workers that are left behind. Global blonde yields are rising, and the risk of puncturing the inflated values of other financial and real property assets are also rising. Deflation of risk asset values to more conventional levels would help reduce the chasm in wealth between the one percenters and the rest. But whether governments have the capacity and the guts to use fiscal policy to try to rekindle stronger growth is a major question for 2017 and beyond. I'm concerned that governments are going to do things that will appease the masses and get them re-elected rather than um, do what's best for the long-term economy. Stronger and better distributed economic growth would help blunt some of the social and political tensions and resentments of globalisation but how many governments have actually got the guts to do it? Of course, the other major issues include mass migration, terrorism, and the collision between the globalization of trade and populations and national identities. The real challenge at Davos and at 10 Downing Street and in Pennsylvania Avenue is to develop a consensus on how to urgently generate more economic growth and ensure that it is more evenly distributed while simultaneously addressing an increasingly job displaced population. One of the interesting things that's happening at the moment is we're getting really close to a totally voice controlled world Do you have an Amazon Echo? It will fundamentally change both your personal and business life like no other gadget before it has ever done. The Amazon Echo isn't just a speaker. It's backed by an artificial intelligence platform named Alexa, which is much more than just another Bluetooth speaker. With Alexa's smarts, the device is also a personal assistant, a smart home controller, and way beyond that. Hands-free computing is here, albeit at the moment, in a pretty basic form. Voice control gives us the ability to engage with computers while still going about our normal business. Voice control will still offer this will soon offer the same level of functionality and benefits without the need to be constantly staring down at our phones or our tablets in the house on the train or even walking down the street and driving. Today's biggest technology companies are already focused on voice-only interfaces, although that kind of computing requires a total rethink on how we interact with our devices. I guess one of the other problems about voice activated is that everybody around you can hear what you're doing. Um, A friend of mine has got a, a new, very smart watch that uses um voice control and it's amazing does everything the only problem is that everybody around you knows what the hell it is that you're doing well I'm not sure about that but this brings us to the Amazon Echo and its artificial intelligence software Alexa the Echo with Alexa is being incorporated into dozens and dozens of third party devices including autonomous vehicles, while Google, Apple, and Microsoft have voice-activated AI, ads, AI aids of their own. But Amazon's currently the leader in the field, especially when it comes to third-party integration. So what are Amazon's advantages? First and foremost, it's Amazon Cloud, called Amazon Web Services, or AWS, which offers a plethora of helpful back-end tools that can power AI, can power natural language processing, machine learning, and other technologies that make a gadget like Echo much more useful. Machine learning is going to be incredible with Alexa. Now, many of the third-party gadget companies that will use Alexa will always also use AWS, enabling Amazon to offer favorable pricing for that hardware integration. See, Amazon also controls a massive e-commerce marketplace, a powerful distribution channel which is very advantageous for these hardware products. An interesting trend that we see with the Echo is that once a person gets one in their home and connects a smart home product like connected lights or a thermostat or a fridge or a toaster or whatever else, they quickly start to connect a whole bunch of other stuff too. So the bigger the ecosystem, the better. The Echo getting Alexa into the home and hooking customers on the larger voice-controlled ecosystem is genius, The key for Amazon is to use these devices to deepen its relationships with its customers. The more shoppers find themselves using Alexa devices, the more Amazon could chip away at the dependencies that consumers have with Google and Apple via their smartphone software. The most interesting development in Amazon's Alexa strategy is the elimination of the screen as a computing interface. If a screen or touch-based input is available on a given gadget, like a smartphone, for example, consumers will default, will default to that input. Rather, you know, They'd rather do that than learn new behaviours and workflows around voice-only solutions, and they'll go back to their screen, they'll type text or set a timer and so on. But Apple needs to get consumers to start spending on Siri and voice is a primary interface mechanism for A1. But as long as there's a screen involved, that won't happen. Amazon, however, is building these new behaviors around Alexa because voice is the only option for interactions there. So once you get used to using voice, you continue to use it, you'll find out how easy it is, you get more and more devices connected, you keep using voice, And it won't be that long before you can do away with your screen. (laughs) Now, Amazon still faces massive challenges in building out its Alexa strategy because um, while they've got a great deal of trust and is well-primed to become the primary interface for smart home technology, it still has an issue because all the stuff that's being sold with Amazon on it is being sold through retailers that hate Amazon because Amazon's eating their lunch in, in sales of product. So Amazon somehow have to win over retailers to get them to promote their product. Do you get my 30-second read business newsletter? It's usually 30 seconds. Today um, was a little bit longer, but it was really good. Um And we now have got about 81,000 daily subscribers, and I invite you to go to the website, which is bobprichard.com, and enroll for the newsletter. It takes about 30 seconds to read on an average day, and it'll keep you up to date with all the business news that's important. So, you know, when you go to the water cooler, you can chat away, and you'll look like the smart person in the group. My guest today, Nolan Bushnell, established Atari Inc., in the Chuck E. Cheese Pizza Time Theatres chain. Nolan's been inducted into the Video Game Hall of Fame and the Consumer Electronics Association Hall of Fame. He was also named one of Newsweek's 50 Men Who Changed America. He's a good friend of mine. And I'll be back with Nolan immediately after this short break on the Voice America Business
0: Network. listening to the Bob Pritchard radio show. To connect with Bob please send an email to Bob at Bobpritchard.com. That's Bob at bobpritchard.com Now back to the show Welcome back to
1: the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking radio show. Now this is the segment of the show where we give you an insight into the lives of some of the most interesting business people. We try to find out what it is that makes them tick. Now, today's guest is somebody who has truly been in the midst of great innovation, surrounded by extraordinary people, and really pushes the envelope. When you look up the definition of entrepreneur, you find the name Nolan Bushnell, and Nolan's today's guest. Nolan's an American engineer and entrepreneur who founded Atari, Chuck E. Cheese Pizza Time Theatres. He's regarded as the father of gaming, has been inducted into the Video Game Hall of Fame and the Consumer Electronics Association Hall of Fame, received the BAFTA Fellowship and was named one of Newsweek's 50 Men Who Changed America. Now, that's not bad. That's not bad for a full resume, but it's really only just a start. Nolan started more than 20 companies as one of the founding fathers of the video game industry. His latest venture is an educational software company called Brain Rush. And I think this is incredible. I've, I've long said on this program that the education system in this country, and in fact, most first world countries does not address um, the needs of the community. It's outdated and it simply doesn't work anymore. And uh, Brain Rush is using video game technology in educational software incorporating real brain science in a way that Nolan thinks will change education fundamentally. Oh, I probably, I might have left out that Nolan was also the guy who discovered Steve Jobs, gave him his first gig, and was a mentor to Steve right up to his passing. Now, one of the great business blunders of all time, in my view, but maybe not in Nolan's, Nolan passed up a one-third interest in Apple. Jeez, that's like me passing up Claudia Schiffer. I mean, <laughs> Nolan's also a fellow member of Metal in Los Angeles, which I talk about frequently. Hi, Nolan. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show.
2: It's great to be here. Uh, you know, it's it's always fun, but uh, you know, whenever I hear my bio, I, I try to remember people that you remind people that you can't live your life looking in the rearview mirror. True. There's good things and there's bad things, and you just can't dwell on it. You got to focus on what you're doing now, and that's the most important thing. Although we've, I think, want to
1: be um, remiss if we didn't question your sanity. Um, Steve Jobs was your friend. You had tremendous respect for his ability and his focus and his drive, and yet you turned down a third interesting apple. Now, why the hell would anybody do that?
2: Steve was an unfinished product, and I've often felt that... Uh, Aren't we all? Exactly. But, but you know, he, he was not a chief executive at that point in time. Yeah. And the guy that invested instead of me was a guy named uh, Mike Markler. Yeah. And I've often felt that he is the unsung hero of Apple because he was the first president, and he instituted the discipline, and he actually tamed Steve Jobs and turned him into an executive Yeah. from the way he, you know, teaching him how to bathe and take care of himself and dress and walk and talk. And and I wouldn't have had the time to do that. So I think the outcome may have been very different had I just put money in without the blood, sweat, and tears that Mike Markla did
1: yeah um, was it was it a good thing turning jobs into a uh, an executive or would he been better and more creative left to run rampant?
2: I don't know. you know it's um, it's often debated whether or not um, the real thing that formed Steve Jobs was in fact uh, his being booted out of Apple starting next next was floundering at the time it was acquired by Apple. Yep. And that when he came back, he really did the pivotal, um, industry, the, the ideas that really put Apple to where it is today. Sure. Before that, he had a very checkered career. The Lisa was a failure. The Macintosh early on was a failure. Um, and, um, and I think that, uh, that he got seasoned with the failure, uh, and I think failure often is very instructive to people, particularly people who are uh, very driven, um, very creative, and um, I think it teaches a little bit of, I don't know if I'd call it humility, but at least uh, a greater level of common sense. Yeah, and, he, and his social skills certainly were lacking. <laughs> so well, you know, I actually disagree. I think that Steve had an ability to turn it on and turn it off when appropriate. Right. For example, I never saw the bad Steve Jobs that's been portrayed in the movies, or uh, you know, even uh, alluded to in a lot of the biographies. My wife, I can remember after dinner party one time saying, "Geez." Nolan, why can't you be more like Steve? <laughs>
1: so, <Yeah. laughs> but that, so, that might be more of a comment on <laughs> your yeah, social skills okay, than his. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> okay you, you graduated from the University of Utah College of Engineering, you had a degree in electrical engineering. So what do you do through high school and, and college? But you work in an amusement park. Now... I probably can't talk, but when I was at university, if I told my mother that I was going to work in a Penny Arcade rather than a number of other opportunities that I probably had, um, I would have either faced excommunication from the family or at a min- at a minimum faced incessant criticism. What I did, I actually, while I was at university, I went into the rock and roll business. I was an entertainer for years, so I can't I can't sling off here. But what was it in the 60s? that had you focus on gaming when at best it was sort of periphery entertainment, Um, arcades were seen as sort of pretty crummy places to be. It hardly seemed like a thriving long-term employment goal. What, what made you so attracted to it?
2: It was actually inadvertence. Um, I've been, I'd been an entrepreneur literally from the age of, Eight mm-hmm. um, And I had a company that was called the Campus Company that uh, sold advertising uh, to a calendar that I gave away to the university's uh, students at the beginning of each quarter or, right. or semester. Yep. And I was making a lot of money. I was driving a 190 SL Mercedes sports car at the time and putting myself through college. And I was making a lot of money. But I also had an ability to spend a lot of money. <laughs> and so I felt that a good thing to do would be get, to get a fun night job at the amusement park. Not because I was pursuing a career, it's just I was keeping myself out of harm's way for myself. Because uh, if I was working, I wouldn't be spending. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I found that I had a knack for it. And, uh, and I was good on the midway and they turned me into a manager and this was really beneficial because as a manager all of a sudden i was managing you know percentages and uh, labor you know managing labor training i had 150 kids working for me uh, on the midway and i had two big arcades that uh, i was managing so i understood the economics of the coin operated game business and and, it, yeah. and that was it was inadvertence and then mm. saw the game at the university and put the two together and knew there was a business there if i could get the cost right right well the, i guess the advantage
1: that all gave you is the major reason that most startups fail is not because the idea isn't good or the person doesn't have drive or whatever it's usually because they don't have the management skills to do all the other things that are essential in, in making a business successful so what you probably gave yourself that background um, rather than learning it as an MBA but you learn it in the
2: school of hard knocks exactly and I've often felt that my boss was better than any professor at a university you know and and, and but you know at the university you didn't get yelled at but my boss would yell at me very often <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's true okay
1: the um, the current business environment it, encouraging an unprecedented number of people to become entrepreneurs every kid you speak to wants to be an entrepreneur and while it has great sort of emotional appeal and it's got that sort of sexy feel about it it's probably the most difficult path that most people can take on it's bloody hard work being an entrepreneur. It's even harder work to be successful. You've been involved in all these startups and you you know, at Metal, everybody talks about Nolan as being always prepared to assist young entrepreneurs, always being there. So what's the most important piece of advice that you can give somebody who wants to be an entrepreneur
2: but is sort of starting out? I think that the biggest mistake that entrepreneurs make, would-be entrepreneurs, is they think they're going to go into the big leagues without playing any sandlot ball. Yeah. And, And I tell them, start your company right now. Don't look for investment. Figure out something that you can do tomorrow that is your company and you're the only employee and get some experience, just dealing with the public, dealing with bringing a, a concept to market, and uh, and and don't let don't let anything get in your way. So many kids today think step one raise capital. No, step one is train yourself. Step one is be an entrepreneur, and don't let the inability to get funding stop you. A lot of these kids actually are scared to death of actually having their, their idea tested. Sure. And so they sabotage themselves. And just as long as they're pursuing their entrepreneurial goal, they're happy. Yeah, they're feeling good about themselves. Yeah. Exactly. And, and so um, by forcing them to remove the obstacle of funding, they have to sort of face their fears, if you would. Yeah. I mean, it does seem
1: funny that, but people people are afraid of of um, success for a whole bunch of reasons. And a lot of entrepreneurs you, you speak to are afraid that as soon as they become successful, somebody's going to come in and steal their business. You know, and <laughs> and knowing a lot of VCs, they're not that far wrong. Um, well,
2: you know, in fact, you know, if you've got a good project, um, the world's a very big place. And you're always going to get competition. Sure. And, you know, there's also parallel development. People, you hear it all the time. Oh, that, those guys stole my idea. No, yeah. they didn't. You yeah. didn't get off your ass and do something.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Could, couldn't agree more. Uh, don't you think that um, big ideas, though, generally require some level of, of capital? I mean, a lot of people have an idea where they make a widget that's going to replace something that's going to make life easy, and that that's great. But if somebody's got a big idea, if you're an Elon Musk, how do you, how do you succeed without capital?
2: Well, that's – it's actually the wrong question. Okay. The, the idea is why, why do you think that you can raise capital when you have no track record? Sure. I mean, I wouldn't invest in somebody if it was their first first go at it. I'd, I'd want to know what their body of work is, their sizzle reel, if you would. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, you know, raising big capital for Elon is pretty good because he's got a pretty good portfolio of, of past accomplishments. Yeah, not bad. <laughs> you know, and so, um, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with being part of a startup team um, you know the first three to five people, uh, following an entrepreneur that has a good portfolio behind them, yeah, and learn from them. Um, you know, just getting out of college and starting a company that's big doesn't make sense. It, and in fact, it it usually it usually fails before it gets started. You just don't get get funding.
1: Yeah. Um, when I was Back in the day when I had a big staff, before I got smart, um, when I was employing people, I used to take them for a walk around the block, and my favorite questions were things like, what's your favorite movie? And if they said, Freddy Friday the 13th, they'd be out of there, because (laughs) I, I always worked on looking for personality. You can always train a monkey but if the monkey's got a rotten personality you're stuck with that monkey um so i was always looking for personality matches not solely educational requirements but in your book finding the next steve jobs you say that when you look when you're looking to hire someone one of your techniques is to ask peculiar weird and from what i've seen usually totally unanswerable things so what is the response going to tell you when you ask weird questions and secondly how important do you think a great personality fit is
2: depends on what the the job is you've got to have a good personality if you're marketing sales that's a fact um less so if it's online sales um but at the same time the essence of business is selling selling ideas selling concepts selling your co-workers um But the main ingredient that I think is I like to try to understand what someone's mental process is. Right. And uh, I don't care what the answer is. I like the steps with which they attack the problem. And more than that, that feeds into the most important, which I think is passion. If people, and and I like to say, don't hire dead people. (laughs) You know, they have, they have no life, and they're in a box. You want to find live people. And I hate to say this, but two-thirds of the population right now that have graduated from college are already dead, and they just don't know it. <laughs> and, and they're dead from the neck up, and they're very happy to sort of turn the crank and fit in and follow a recipe I don't want that. I want people who are pushing the envelope, who are thinking, who who because of their passion, anything they don't know, they'll train themselves. On the web today, yeah. you can train yourself at anything much faster than you can in college. Of course, the last thing
1: you want in any business is a disruptive personality or someone who's got a personality that doesn't fit because if you haven't got a harmonious team, most of the time it spreads like a cancer and you end up on your ass.
2: I actually disagree. (laughs) (laughs) I believe that...
1: (laughs) You can um, disagree with me all you like. I I fight with all sorts of people, mainly uh, wives, but apart from that.
2: Here's here's the difference. Um, There are some people who are bristly. Steve Jobs is bristly. Yep. You know? Yep. Um, But if you wanted a certain problem solved, he could solve it. And sometimes the smartest person in the room who's constantly telling you they're the smartest person in the room, that's obnoxious. Yeah. But when the chips are down, you want the smartest person in the room. And so I have this attitude that I can always put someone where they're a little bit obnoxious, I can mitigate that by putting them in a different building, putting them in the basement, putting, you know, <laughs> having them on the night shift. Um, and and um, I want the best people for the job. And I, I'm very, well, let me just say that I don't like people who are offended. Yep. I, I just say grow up, you know, the the stuff that's going on on college campuses now and political correctness and all that, you're you're creating a bunch of babies, and and you know I, right now, one of the things that I try to do is, if people take offense at everything, that's a red flag. Yeah, like I agree, yeah, and, yeah, just you. Know, I want grownups. <laughs> I want strong, <laughs> tough, you know, people who who have a thick skin. And yeah, will go to, yeah, we'll go to a, the mat so, for what they believe. Exactly.
1: Yeah. So you've had careers in several areas: gaming, kids' entertainment, restaurants, etc. But all all essentially using gaming to create customer interaction and involvement.
2: And well, not all. You know, I did the first automobile navigation system, ETAC. Right. That was totally utilitarian. First shopping okay. system, um, and while there was user interface constructs that may be considered similar to gaming, yeah, uh, they really weren't games. They were they were functionalities.
1: Okay, so your excursion into education through Brain Rush, it appears to hold um, a special appeal to you, from what I've read. Um, and I've and what I've heard at um, at medal, what um,
2: why is brain rush so important to you? Well, I have I have eight children, so I've been to back school night and sat on the little desks. I have five sons, um, who are, I guess, the best I could describe them as they're disruptive students. Yeah. And they're all really smart, and they just bristled at the environment that they had to deal with in school. And, um, and, it, and we were a very, very teaching household. We, we, we talked about a lot of things from history to philosophy, and, and, um, and, they, and, and as a result, they very often would come back and say, I got a seat in this class and I know more than the teacher. Yep. And, and uh, you know, I—I I, unfortunately I think I teach intellectual arrogance with my kids too. <laughs> but for good or bad or ill. Yeah, that's good, yep. Anyway, um, but for example, my youngest son started his company the day he graduated from high school. Right. And we fought for two years to keep him in high school because he felt that he was wasting his time. Yeah, And he now has a company that'll do a couple million dollars this year and, you know, employs seven people and uh, is doing very nicely um, and is a tremendous programmer. Um, and I, uh, you know, my, uh, my second oldest son just did a Kickstarter, raised $150,000 on a product that he designed um, and he had exactly three quarters of college. Yeah. You know, and, and so, you know, it's a, um, it's a thing where I think that school right now is so dysfunctional on so many levels. I mean, we've reinvented um, indentured servitude. Yeah. Okay. And uh, graduating with a, with a college degree and owing $100,000 I think is, is madness. Ah, it's ridiculous. Lunacy. It's, it's lunacy. And I just feel like today, um, you can learn so much faster, and, and you know, with, based on the brain science, we can teach almost any subject 10 times faster than a classroom. Uh, at essentially zero incremental cost. I mean, we, we charge something, but it's not very much. And I just think that um, that we have to rethink the whole thing. I I think it's ridiculous that we have such a bloated system of both on college and high school that we can't be twice as effective at half the half the expenditure. Yeah. And um, and I I just yelled that at the top of my lungs, and it's not necessarily you know if it's and it's just not me. I've got. You know, there's all kinds of really great software systems out there. It's just that today's school, high school and college, are so entrenched in the metrics of 100 years ago. They don't realize they haven't figured out that the internet exists. Really, yeah, yeah. and the so whole thing needs to be retooled.
1: Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a great. Um believer that the education system is is really failing but is it failing is it failing everybody I, I, my main beef's been with people who are creative where it sort of belts the hell out of your creativity and tells you that you know you shouldn't do any of those things they're things you should do as a periphery don't be a musician go and learn stem subjects and if you want to be a musician do that later or you want to be a great artist so I think it really fails the arts um how badly does it file
2: um, STEM subjects? Pretty badly. Um, Just because it's inefficient. Um, The STEM subjects are harder uh, in general
1: uh,
2: because of the methodology. They don't need to be that hard. Um, The best way to teach STEM, particularly physics and math, is or projects, and uh, and I think that uh, if you look at today's high school, they don't even have you know auto shop anymore. Yep. And that I believe is a is a cruel truncation. Um, how many how many high schools require you to do a YouTube video in order to graduate? None. Um, how many English classes require you to publish? A short story on Kindle singles. None. All of these things should be part of the arsenal of tools kids graduate from high school with, let alone college. Sure.
1: Is it a failure of? Is it a failure of the system, or well, it's obviously a failure of the system. Is it? Is it because? Um, they just haven't caught up with, haven't kept up with technology and with new techniques. Or is it because they try to level the
2: playing field for every student? Both. It's really, it's really a combination of both, and it's also a a problem of credentialing. Um, you know, in order to, um, to really succeed um a lot of people feel that you have to have credentials they're still you know working for the government working for certain things you need a credential yeah and so what that does is that's the gatekeeper for a whole series of jobs and uh, it's just wrong it uh, you know I wouldn't I would no more care about what the grades of a of a potential employees coming to me, then fly to the moon. I don't even ask if they've graduated from college. The The guy who did the primary architecture for the Atari 2600 was a was a high school dropout. Yeah. You've only got to look at the list
1: of, of billionaires in the world to see how many have completed college. Exactly.
2: Jobs is one of them.
1: Yeah. Okay. I, I had dinner with my son last night, and um, he was uh, – going, when he finished college, he was going to head to a, um, a startup or something akin to that. And it was um, Tim Draper who said to him, look, before you go and do that, go and work for one of the big guys for a couple of years, which he did. Uh, I had dinner with him last night and he said, um, he's putting in close to 100 hours a week, he's 24, 25, putting in close to 100 hours a week at one of the big two, and uh, how critical is it to get a work-life balance? And how do you do that? I mean, you've got eight kids, so you've obviously got some level of work-life balance. Um, how, how do how do you balance that? How do you have a life and become an
2: entrepreneur at the same time? It takes maturity, a little bit. I don't, I don't pretend to say that I. Didn't have some uh, some real uh, problems with that. Let me. Yeah. Sorry about that. No problem. Um, I can't say that I was always home when I should be. Did I miss a lot of soccer games and swim meets? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I tried very hard to be there when I was there, and uh, you know spend one-on-one time with uh, with my kids every Sunday morning. Everybody knew whose turn it was to go to breakfast with Dad. Yeah. Um, and and I think that uh, as you get a little more successful, you understand that you don't have to give it so much. Early on, at 24, I, I can honestly say I didn't know how hard I had to work, but I knew that if I worked as hard as I could, that would be enough. And 100-hour weeks were very normal for me, yeah. very normal. And, and I think that uh, it's so much better than a lot of kids who have this, this extended adolescence into their 30s. And they don't do that. They yeah. balance it way on the other side. Um and uh I think that that you have to grow up. Uh and uh kids don't feel you know I was married at 22 and that's too young. Yep. But it does give you a sense of responsibility and and uh and maturity that I think you can't get if you are, you know, 30 and still going to Tinder every night. Yeah. Don't feel so bad because
1: back in those days Everybody got married at 22 it was a, with a whole different, whole different era. So how's the rollout of Brainwash going? How are you rolling it out? And what sort of response are you
2: getting from traditional educators? Horribly. Um, it's been the hardest that company that I've ever dealt with. Uh, the marketplace is, is, is toxic and resistant to change. They all give platitudes, but when it comes to change, they're resistant. The network infrastructure in today's high school is so bad that if you want to do something really good using the Internet, uh, there's maybe a computer lab that works. But to integrate it into a random history or or mathematics class, nobody home, Yeah, it's... um, it is a colossal disappointment.
1: So, and I guess they're all protecting their ass too, aren't they?
2: Oh, absolutely. Do you know there's, there are a lot of high school teachers that don't have an email address? I mean, that, can you believe that?
1: Uh, yeah, I'd believe it. I'd believe it. I think there are a few people. You know, the the Zuckerbergs of this world seem to be trying hard to. Um, to change the education, at least the attitude to education and technology, but it's a hard road, isn't it?
2: Well, throwing money, a toxic system will chew up every bit of money that they have without change. Yeah. Throwing money at a problem just makes it worse. It, It entrenches the bad habits even more. You have to be disruptive and you have to show that you can educate better and that you can spend less money. You know, there's all kinds of private schools that just throw money and they have six kids in a classroom and all that. And and the funny part about it is that they don't necessarily perform that much better than the regular schools. In order to really deal with today's problems and today's issues, the whole school experience has to be re retooled um a data point homeschoolers kids who have never been to a high school never been to a junior high school are in demand by colleges because it turns out that they perform better than kids who've gone through the regular paradigm Hmm.
1: so what um where do you see brain rush going in the in the foreseeable
2: future we're doing a slight pivot, and we're gonna be continuing to to, you know, bat our heads against the wall, uh, but we're doing more in corporate training where there are people that want efficiency. The business world wants efficiency. They want to train their people better, and they want to train their people cheaper, and we've, we fit right into that. On a quick frivolous note, um,
1: Jobs and Bushnell seem to be popping up on big screens and small screens all over the place at the moment um, who'd be the ideal actor to portray Nolan Bushnell somebody
2: tall thin piercing blue eyes <laughs> <laughs> well you know there's, there's a there's a script of uh, the first years of Atari sort of focusing on me floating mm-hmm. around um, DiCaprio optioned it and, and now there's a couple of other people flopping around the development time on movies is actually surprisingly long. Yes, yeah, I'm familiar with it, yeah. And I've often thought, you know, if either of the jobs movies does really well in the box office, mine will be green-lighted. Right. Since they haven't, I, 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 I think it's going to be a little while. Okay. Nolan,
1: <laughs> thank you very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Uh, if you'd like to know more about Nolan simply Google Nolan Bushnell and you'll get 450,000 results so there's a whole wealth of information there and if you want to know more about the um, exciting educational tool Brain Rush which I think there's got to be a wholesale change to education it sucks so go to brainrush.com that's brainrush.com and I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business after this short break
0: you are listening to the Bob Pritchard radio show. To connect with Bob please send an email to Bob at Bobpritchard.com that's Bob at Bobpritchard.com now back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show.
1: We are being broadcast across the world on Voice America Business Channel, the number one global business show for entrepreneurs. And we're broadcasting from Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles, where technology meets entertainment. Now, this is one of the best ideas I've ever heard, and I've heard some great ideas, but this is terrific. Grubhub-powered Green Summit doesn't operate a single restaurant, but it has eight restaurant brands delivering food in New York City. They have eight restaurants, two kitchens, one company, zero storefronts, and they deliver seven and a half thousand meals a week and generate millions of dollars in revenue. These eight brands exist only online delivering in Midtown Manhattan and Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and they're part of a growing food takeout industry that's dominated by Grubhub. The delivery platform, which includes Seamless, served $2.4 billion worth of food in 2015 and has helped Green Summit grow very rapidly. Without the burden of managing retail spaces, Green Summit can quickly cater to fast evolving consumer preferences and deliver high returns to the owners. The company sells its salads, sandwiches, burritos, Asian rice bowls, meatballs, subs, milkshakes, ju- juices, and a whole range of other stuff. Under brands that exist only as logos on paper bags and websites. Authentic, Leafage. Butcher Block, Maya Blue, Braised, Bushwick, Grind Meatballs, Crust Deli. They're just names that they dreamed up. There's no such restaurant. So unlike the company's brick-and-mortar competitors, Green Summit can shift menu items and create a branded online-only restaurant that just appeals to the flavor of the moment. They can use whatever... Um, The ingredients are cheap at the time, and whether it's low-carb or low-fat or gluten-free or all things bacon or whatever the hell it is, they can do it and change it on a dime, and they can amortize food across all the different The nine different restaurants. There's a variety in terms of ethnicity and cuisine types, but also along the healthy spectrum. You can have vegan or vegetarian or chicken and shrimp. You can cater to a really broad audience. It's a variety of categories and variety within categories. It is a sensational idea. In late um, February, a ninth restaurant will materialize in the same kitchen, a sushi joint called Hummingbird whose wares were market-tested as menus under two of the other existing phantom brands. And after that, Green Summit plans to broaden their geographic reach to the whole of New York and also to open in Chicago later this year. The company lost cost less than a million to establish, and together the brands brought in $10 million in revenue, Last year and they anticipate revenue will triple to thirty million this year. They've got no head chef who tests and retests recipes. Instead the founders rack their brains and come up with new names and new concepts for menus and look to pop culture, sports and music for sandwich and soup titles and salads. Concept's absolutely brilliant. It's a six thousand square foot Manhattan kitchen is nothing more than a pair of opaque glass doors on forty second street. Two dozen printers at the kitchen begin discharging orders in the late morning when corporations, which account for 70% of Manhattan's sales, submit their group lunch orders. An integrated point of sale application connects Grubhub and Seamless to Green Summit. Chefs prepare the meals, vegetables and grains, cook them up using a single formula. For example, roasting chicken with appropriate spices, the chickens then use these ingredient in dishes across all of the restaurants. The approach provides an economy of scale that prioritizes freshness and uses an unprocessed ingredients in every culinary authenticity. By 10.30, some 50 prep cooks, line cooks and expediters on seven lines assemble the first of 600 lunches. Then the company employs more than 200 people who are needed to get the food out quickly. Each brand has an expediter at a small station who receives the food and packs it. Finished orders go to the front in paper sacks, imprinted with each brand's logo. They're then stuffed into seamless bags and organized by customer and final destination. And then they get them out. And then at one o'clock, workers eat, clean up before they start preparing for dinner. And another 600 orders flood in. The founder... Peter Schatzberg, was running an organic deli in New York when he realised that half his volume was delivery. So he approached contacts at seamless. And uh, as it said, the rest is history. As he introduced the brands, he tried to differentiate them with free signature offerings of popcorn and candy bars and sides and mason jars and, you know, and and or free slaw. And as he says, free slaw is just 15 cents a cabbage. So um, Green Summit's killing them. Nine restaurants all selling takeout food without having a restaurant that is a very expensive overhead. Grubhub and Seamless, which take at least 10% cut of each order, are laughing. Now, I invite you to go to my website, bobpritchard.com, and enroll for my daily newsletter. It takes just 30 seconds to read. It'll keep you up to date with all the business news that is important. Now, remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. It's easier and much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. And next week, I'll be back broadcasting from Hollywood Boulevard, where where technology meets entertainment, and I hope you can join me again. In the meanwhile, continue to be successful because the alternative sucks.
0: No matter where you are in America, try to stay warm.